When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Before this episode of the Final Word podcast, a quick update on all things Final Word. Adam and Jeff have been busy covering the England versus India test series. It's a daily wrap-up of the day's play. Make sure you check out the Final Word on YouTube. You can watch all of the daily eps there. The Final Word has joined the ACAST family. We are grateful for ACAST's support. They're helping us produce this show for you each week. Thanks for your patience while we moved everything over to ACAST. And if for some reason you missed an episode during this process, you can find everything at finalwordcricket.com. Last but certainly not least, our naming rights sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing. Thank you, Brick Lane. Check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram, Facebook, and on their website, bricklanebrewing.com. Now, we've told you about all their great beers, their trilogy of Fear, The Backyarder, The Draft, The One Love Pale Ale, The Lager, and their low-alcohol option Sidewinder Hazy Pale. They are all available at bricklanebrewing.com. Now, let's say you're a longtime listener to the show, but a first-time consumer of Brick Lane's finest. The team at Brick Lane have you covered. Check out the merch section. Pick up the Brick Lane Discovery Pack. It's a sampler of their finest brews. Or get ready for Father's Day with the Crafty Dad Pack, or the Grab Dad a Coldy Pack. There are so many options. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the final word, and thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word. Cricket podcast with Jeff Lemon and Daniel Norcross. Believe it or not, for the first time in, I'm going to tell you a number here, we've done 362 episodes up until this point. Adam Collins has never missed an episode. He has, I, I've missed two, I think, when I went on holiday in January 2020, just before the pandemic, thus bringing it on, and Daniel filled in for me then. But here he is today, filling in for Adam Collins after 362 eps. What are you more surprised about? The fact that Adam has actually taken a holiday? Or, well, probably nothing would be more surprising than that. Well, um, actually, I take the blame for it. Uh, this, uh, this is a very unintended consequence of an intervention. Um, I don't know if Adam <laughs> told you this, but the other day, uh, after a day, hard day at the coalface of cricket commentary for SEN, we were working on the England-India game from a remote location. And Adam, as is his wont, has managed to get everything all sorted out with about nine nanoseconds to go, which is a little bit better than normal, mm-hmm. to be honest. And he was frazzled. He was a nearly broken man. And we went to the pub after it. I was with Jeremy Coney. Jeremy was there. Mm-hmm. I was there. A couple of other guys <laughs> were there. And I said to him, I said, Adam. No, sorry. It's me saying it now, not, not Jeremy. Yep. I, said, yep. Uh, yep. I said, Adam, I'm afraid we're going to have to do an intervention. 
you need to look after yourself. You need to give Rachel and Winnie some time because you're, you're, you're killing yourself and you're killing... So it's wildly over the top because you can't do an intervention by saying, mm -hmm. have you thought of taking a break? No. So obviously I had to exaggerate, yeah. you know. Um, and, and he actually, he paused and, and he listened and I think, I think he's taken it on board because he's gone away for four well. days. Four days, Jeff. Yeah. I've told him to turn the phone <laughs> off. I've only had three WhatsApps from him today. It's just, I think we might be getting somewhere, you know. I think he might, in about three hours' time, genuinely go for a scenic walk, hand in hand, mm -hmm. with his lovely partner and his delicious daughter, and he might just momentarily not have to work out how to get 14 different bits of equipment back to 12 different mm -hmm. locations disparately spread across <laughs> the south of England. So, um, look, fingers crossed for him. Let's hope he never hears any of this, I by the way. <laughs> I, I, I'm, sure, I, I'm sure he'll be listening to it 30 minutes after it goes up at most, um, no matter what time of day that is. Maybe he's, uh, we'll probably find he's spent the time, you know, scanning all of the pages of his wisdom collections or something like that um, in the interview. Just just trying to get a head start on some, you know, on, on some other projects that are coming up. Uh, it's good that I had those four days off so I could really plough into the next thing. So that's what he's been doing. Um, what have you been? doing what has your life looked like over the last little while well i mean much like a lot of people's in england throughout the pandemic it was mind crushingly dull but uh, when doing your bit for society involves just staying at home mm -hmm. and watching every episode of the sopranos for the first time in your life it's it's not quite the same as you know flying a spitfire yeah. so uh, i've been able to do that I, i've been able to wear a mask without feeling my masculinity has been in some way compromised um, I've been able to mm -hmm. get a couple of jabs in my arms without feeling that I've been monitored by Bill Gates. Mm -hmm. And then, in the last few months, I've had some genuine cricket to go and watch in the company of crowds of people. And it's been rather lovely and commentated. And I've done the first test match. Well, I've done, I've done all four test matches in England this year, two, three for TMS mm -hmm. and then one with Adam. And I've seen a bit of the West Indies. It's, it's been, it's jolly. But what I have to tell you is that uh, in May of every year, as an Englishman, mm -hmm. I start to have a recurring panic dream that it is, in fact, September. Because mm. as an Englishman, we live for those long summer nights where only mild mizzle is falling and it gets to the heady heights <laughs> of 18 degrees, which is to us a form of joy. And so mm. I kind of go to sleep and my panicked brain shoots forward to me being thrown back into the horrors of autumn. But now it kind of, it sort of is real because it's the 17th of August. And the last time I was on The Final Word, I was explaining to your listeners mm. how I now break down every off-season as one year of the Second World War. So, as you may mm -hmm. recall, October is September 39 to the end of August 1940, the phony war when nothing much happens mm -hmm. until the clocks go back. And then, you know, we evacuate Dunkirk and you realise you're in mm -hmm. for the long haul. And so I've realized, actually, that this being the 17th of August when we're recording this, that equates, if I go backwards in my timeline, to roughly the, the 24th of March. So yesterday was the 12th of March, which was the day mm -hmm. Hitler annexed Austria, the Anschluss, which really mm -hmm. was the sort of point at which wise counsel realized that war was ahead. So... I'm now realising that I'm about to go to war in about a month and a half's time and I'm beginning to panic, mm -hmm. Jeff. 
And if this goes on much more like this, I'll have no joy left in life because I'll reach May thinking, shit, it's only six months until we go to war. (laughs) (laughs) Neville Chamberlain will not save you this time around. Uh, Well, let let us think of joy then because, you know, you're, you're worried about the absence of joy, but you've just had a surfeit of joy over the last five days before recording this. England versus India, the second test at Lords, a, a classic, a beautiful finish, one of those proper long shadows across the pitch on day five, you know, right to the, uh, the jaws of the timekeepers at the very end, eight overs to go when the match was decided. It's never got any less special that w- when the finish comes that late and you still don't know which way it's going to go. It's, oh. you know, I've, I've seen my share of them now and they're special every time. They are, they are superb. When I first started commentating our very first test match was the cardiff test of 2009 i was spoiled kind of really and england actually had two more blinders in the following series against south africa in 2009-10 where they they were nine down each time graham onions was the hero on those occasions panasar and anderson at cardiff and i found myself in the hot seat again yesterday and you're right there is something absolutely magnificent about counting down the balls you know after tea there were 38 overs left that was 228 balls and then you counted down below 200 and then that partnership between uh, well Moeen Ali and Butler to begin with but the way the wicket sweat suddenly you know Jeffrey Boycott says rather tediously oh yeah I do I do wickets this year and weirdly you did have to because England kept losing two wickets in little clusters um, <laughs> Siraj was on a hat trick twice in that match wasn't he and uh, yep. when Curran went it was all over. England had definitely lost. And then Robinson and Butler, they were, they were really good, actually. They were really gutsy. Mm-hmm. As you say, the shadows were lengthening. In my mind's eye, I could see that incredible picture of the tide test. You know, that wonderful one leaping in the air, arms aloft when the run out happens. And it was like that, sort of every ball. It was getting closer and closer to that. And then for me, the moment of the game... There are some miserablists on Twitter who don't think it to be the case. But it was a great, great moment when Boomerah changed his angle, came round the wicket, and it looked at that point, what was there left then? About 9.1 overs, I think, something like that, mm-hmm. or 9.2 overs. And he started to think, they're going to do this, you know. They've, they've got this in the bag. Then Bumrah, bowling a seventh ball in an over, because he bowled that kind of wide no-ball thing. And he did that a bit in this test match. And it was with that last yeah, ball. Just a bit. Just a bit. About 30 of them. We'll come to that. I mean, the Anderson over. But then he comes around the wicket, and of course the umpire doesn't think that could be LBW. How can you bowl with that action round the wicket and pitch it online and hit the stumps? Well, because he's just pulled off a beautiful piece of skill. The off-cutter to land, just on the line of leg stump. Slower, 72 miles an hour, bamboozling Robinson, who's expecting the quicker ball every time. It goes through those groping defences that are there a, a fraction of a second too early. Up go the fielders, they're convinced. Coley waits in that marvellous dramatic fashion then oh he's going to go for it it's shown to be out and you think oh my god this is India's again probably but Butler's still there will Butler now be farming Mm -hmm. the strike has he now got to protect Wood well Butler's brain was scrambled he batted terribly well actually he batted really really well because it's not his game gets the thin edge and then the wicket to win it what a what a beautiful ball in the euphoria and the madness of what happened I think we haven't really spent long enough gazing at what a wonderful ball that was. Because Anderson, unlike Stuart Broad, 
is actually prepared to get onto the front foot and risk his life. Mm. <laughs> and, and he'd covered the off stump. You look at the replays, you go, well, he's covered off stump. Somehow the ball snake charmed its way around the outside of, of his bat and then mm-hmm. just comes in and hits the stumps. <laughs> Pandemonium ensues. And again, that India most definitely were on course to win at the end of day one and most definitely had no chance of winning at all at the beginning of day five. They won. The wonderful, the captivating craziness of the narrative of Test cricket. It was startlingly good fun. Ugh. And from day one all the way through, I, I, what I loved about that match, one of the things was the discipline coming through from the Indian batsmen. So Rohit Sharma and Kale Rahul in the first innings, just the way they played inside the line of everything all day. And, you know, they are white ball crusaders you think of them as attacking to the point of reckless you know Rohit Sharma does have that problem with continuing to play the pull shot that that gets him out but in that first innings they just said okay we've been sent in the conditions are against us we're just not going to give England any satisfaction and to put on a hundred run partnership under those conditions the way that Rohit kept the run scoring going. I mean, one of them made 100 and one of them didn't, but uh, Rowett's innings was worth 100 in terms of what it did for the side. And then the way that spills over into the second innings with Pajara and Rahane, that partnership that they put on. I mean, the amount of criticism that those two get for batting slowly at times, particularly Pajara, they put on an even 100-run stand. They were three for 55 when they came together. You know, they're 25 runs in front or whatever it is. There is no way India can win if one of them gets out then. But they put on that 100. They take the lead up to 136, was it? And at that point, you know, if the rest of your batting order can put together another 30 or 40, you've got a reasonable target to bowl at. You might not win, but you might. They were the difference mm. there. You know, the tail end partnership with Boomer and Shami was the unexpected thing that... that made India's position impregnable. But even if that hadn't happened, India would still have been some chance to be able to pull off a win, given the work that those guys did. They batted for 49 and a half overs to put on those 100 runs. And they also just took enough time out of the game that it meant that it wasn't England's game anymore by the time they got out, even though they they didn't go on to big scores they still did something that was really important. Yeah, I mean, look, Indian cricket fans, I guess, are no different from all cricket fans. They see things in complete binary. And when it's not, when someone gets out or is going through a poor trot, then they're rubbish and you've got mm-hmm. to get rid of them. And it's it's tough, I guess, uh, for India because they've got so much talent waiting in the wings. You know, they are blessed with a huge number of alternatives. So everything comes down to selection for Indian Twitter. Mm-hmm. But those guys... What you're absolutely right. What a partnership it was because England had their tails up then. When Coley got out, there was euphoria in the England camp. It was mm. the only major contribution Sam Curran made to the entire Test match, really. Well, I mean, apart from becoming the first man in the history of a Lord's Test to bag a King pair, which is an achievement of sorts, Yuck. poor lad. Um, but it was it, it was a superb partnership. I, I take slight issue with them getting India into. I mean, well, no, I mean, you're right. They, they got them to a position where they could defend. But those late wickets on that day put England back on top. And, and actually, mm. they kept on going that following morning, on the Friday morning, when um, Robinson, with a brilliant knuckleball, again, great bit of white ball skill in a red ball game, slower ball to take that mm. wicket. But the damage, I'm afraid, was done to the English psyche when they allowed Bumrah's over to Jimmy Anderson to get under their skin because the moment Bumrah came mm-hmm. out to bat, 
This is a guy who had got fewer runs than wickets in his test career. 93 wickets, 71 runs, I think, at the mm-hmm. point he came out to bat. Full and straight. They've got Stuart Broad in their own side. They know how to get out a tail ender. You bowl a bouncer, which he might edge or wallop over deep mid-wicket, and then you bowl the full ball. But England didn't. They mm-hmm. kept peppering him in a form of retribution. And actually, had they gone through Bumrah and Siraj and been set a target of 170, well, Cody wouldn't have been able to set the fields he did. They wouldn't have been able to attack the way they did. England wouldn't have been so nervous. You know, when England went out to bat, they knew mm-hmm. they couldn't win the game. If they'd needed 180 in 75 overs, there would have been a lot more calm there. So I think it, that innings was a tale of two partnerships. One was constructed by two brilliant batters playing perfect test cricket. The other was gifted by one of the most extraordinary collective brain fades I've witnessed mm. on a cricket field. I mean, that was an hour and a half of almost impossible to understand cricket. And then, to cap it all, Jeff, Kohli wasted four overs after lunch. The wonderful sight of Mohammed Shami changing his thigh guard. He was brought two thigh guards mm-hmm. so he could choose. Because at the highest level, you get to choose which thigh guard you like, right? Mm-hmm. He then faced one ball, which he edged through the slips, and he trooped off. There were three balls still left in the over. None of it made any sense. And I mm. thought, I genuinely thought, during the Robinson-Butler partnership, that the loss of those four overs could come back to, to bite Coley. But in fact, mm. nothing was going to bite Coley that day. He, he had this wonderful team talk where he got everyone together. I don't know if you saw it. And he said, no one is smiling at these English batters. This next 60 overs has got to feel like hell for them out there. And they did. The intensity was what was so exciting. Mm. And there was a little bit of poor batting, but the pressure that was on them, the other part of it, which is difficult mm. to communicate really, but at Lords on day five, it's the kind of the day, it's like a people's day. It's like sort of middle Sunday in Wimbledon if it's rained, you know, when suddenly anybody troops up because you can't buy tickets in advance for day five as a general rule. So suddenly they're like 20 quid and families of Indians turned up and the whole nature of the crowd was not champagne corks popping from you know rather tedious men in blazers it was a bit like Mm -hmm. more like the women's world cup final you know where there was this sort of festive wonderful atmosphere and that atmosphere and that sort of that partisan indian crowd was in there as well combined with the almost psychotic intensity of Kohli, backed up by siraj who was just wondrously menacing and constantly attacking the stumps, finding movement where there was none. Even when the sun came out, he was getting it to boomerang. It was just electrifying. The hairs on the back of your neck stood up. It was something that you only ever see in test cricket. And as you said right at the beginning, the framework of it, counting down the balls, can they survive, can they survive? And, you know, it was better that they didn't, really. Because, you know, the anti-climax, I've seen those Mm nine-wicket-down draws, and there's a horrible anticlimax to the last ball. Even if it's your side, it's like, yeah! What do we do now? Oh, well, we draw. <laughs> Whereas, you know, the theatre of the stumps being hit and by the guy who was kind of central to that bowling performance, mm. Siraj, it was, uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful denouement. And um, any thought of fandom just flies out of your mind when you're calling a game like that or, I dare say, watching it. You just... 
marvel mm. at the spectacle. It was beautiful. Bringing tears to my eyes, Jeffrey. If we, we look at the England side of it, I mean, Joe Root is starting to look like a sort of late career Brian Lara at the moment where it's it's just him, you know. He, he's it. He's the one who might be able to do something ridiculous to win you a game or save you a game, but if he doesn't, then no one else can, which, you know, probably puts its own kind of pressure on him. You said that England were never going to be able to chase that target and they probably weren't coming out at... at needing four and a half and over across the end of the day. I did think, though, that completely surrendering the possibility of it didn't help. Yeah. I, I, I really want to... And, like, maybe this is naive and maybe this is playing fantasy cricket, but what I, what I wanted to see, what I, in my dreams, would have liked to have seen was to have England reshuffle their batting order and say, all right, you've got three guys at the top who cannot score. Whether they get out or not, they can't score. They could bat for the rest of the day and they won't score. But you've got stroke makers further down the order. You've got players who can put pressure back on bowlers. Why not consider moving it around? Why not consider fashioning a top three out of Butler, Bairstow, Moen? You keep Root at four. And so that if those guys up the top are going well, then Root can come in and support them. If it doesn't work and, and they're out cheaply, then he can try to repair things. You've got your stonewallers down the order who can try to bat things out if things become a draw. And it seemed like that might have been a clearer way to approach it. If you had, you know, Burns, Sibley, uh, Hamid coming in down the order, knowing that they just had to save the game, that might be different to coming in up the top where they've still got the entire innings to bat. And the fact that there was no consideration of that it, it what certainly wasn't as egregious as the New Zealand test a couple of months ago at Lords, where you know they needed about the same sort of target, two seventy odd in seventy five overs rather than sixty overs that time. And again, they didn't even bother to go for it; they just shut up shop and batted out the draw. It's so at odds with England as a white ball team at the moment, where in limited overs cricket they're all about boldness, they're about seizing the game, and in test cricket they're about hiding from the game and hoping it doesn't find them you know it, there was no imagination there was no spark there was precious little heart and and I think this is to do with the coaches and the administration as well like the sort of leadership nexus of this whole England test squad it just honestly it comes across to me as spineless yeah I mean I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that I think I think it is a fantasy I don't think any other side would do it but you make a strong case for why England of all teams should because they had in that lineup as you say Butler, Bairstow, Moeen Ali, Joe Root who are four mainstays of their white ball side so they're very much aware of how courageous bold attacking cricket works for them in one scenario but you know test cricket is a weird beast and every country grows up with its own culture of test cricket and the English culture of Test cricket has, has mostly speaking, been caution. It's been a bit South African in a way. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't just go away overnight. And what there also is, is a fear of how you would look. Because if England mm. were, you know, 25 for three and Root was one of them because they'd just gone on the offensive and Bairstow had got out early because he's not used to playing against the, the moving new ball and Butler doesn't open against a red ball and hasn't had much red ball cricket, then they would have been pilloried. So they sort of job forward to imagining how badly people will take it Mm. if they lose, rather than, as you say, you know, put that to one side. Your only way, actually, of having control of those 60 overs is to try to force control away from Coley and his bowlers. Because if you go out there and block, as they did, 
then you're just saying to yourself, right, well, we've just got 60 overs of sheer hell to endure here. Can we do mm. it? But I guess in part, they were also looking at that pitch that they'd bowled on themselves, which died. I mean, you know, England, partly their tactics were dreadful with the ball, but partly, notwithstanding Wood's injury to his shoulder, they couldn't really extract anything from that pitch. Even someone like Robinson, who, who tends to hit a pitch hard and get movement, having a jag around, was finding the ball dying in the surface. So I think their calculation was that even if we go after it, there's just not enough in the wicket for us to, to get anywhere. And also, mm. look, this is a really, really good pace attack. This, this Indian pace attack keeps coming at you. There's four of them. Shami was the weak link in this game. Now, when Shami's your weak link... You've got a pretty good lineup, haven't you? Do you know? So I think there is there's a bit of realism, over realism comes in. I take all the points you make there. Uh, rather than focus on that, I, to me it was all about the irresistibility of the Indian performance and how they managed to they picked mm. a fight and they're good at that. Once they got the fight, it works for them. What England were bad at for me was they allowed the fight to be picked. You know, Anderson needed to walk mm. off with his bruises and say nothing and smile and Root needed to smile and, you know, slap on the back. You've not risen to it. Then you don't lose your mind in the, in the crucial moment in that fifth morning session. I think that was a really yeah. big part of it. The other part, also from just seeing the conditions, it was pretty dark, not dark enough for bad light, but it makes seeing it more difficult. It makes batting in mm. it in an aggressive way more difficult. It wasn't particularly warm, there were loads of things that, that counted against him. That's the beauty of Test cricket. But you do also touch on Root. And can I give you a stat? Because I, I think you'll like this stat. Mm -hmm. So Joe Root this year, already in the middle of August, just after the Anschluss of Austria, has scored 1,277 runs, which is in and of itself a very good year. And he's got plenty more to give. The next mm -hmm. highest scoring English batter is Rory Burns. He has scored... 363 runs. Oof. The difference between Root and Burns is therefore 914 runs. That seems like a lot, doesn't it? Now, I'll, <laughs> I'll put into context just how much of a lot it is. That is a record already in a calendar year for a batter in the same side as the second highest run-scoring batter. And the previous record was held by Roy Fredericks, who had 881 fewer runs than Viv Richards. However, mm. Viv Richards in 1976 scored 1,760-odd runs. So at least Roy Frederick scored 880-odd. <laughs> Rory Burns has got 363. And people are wondering whether Rory Burns should be dropped. There's, there's quite a few more mm. candidates first before we get to Rory Burns. But it tells you yeah. exactly. You said late era Brian Lara, and it, it feels like that. I thought what was terrific, though, was that there was a sense, there was a fear, actually, that Joe had lost his joie de vivre that how are you going to be able to mm. carry the burden and in this series he's been really sparkly really jovial. joyous joyous utterly yeah. joyous until until they started bowling bounces at Jasprit Bumrah and until mm. he dropped a catch off Bowie Alley and then his face crumpled well, then, and he until he like tried thunder. to get angry until he tried to he get angry he doesn't really do he doesn't do angry very well. He's not very good at angry. And he looked absolutely shattered afterwards. Like, mm. You know, I've seen him lose a lot of test matches, but I've never seen him look quite so distraught because I think he knew that it was 
it was his tactical flaw. It was his uh, him in the first session of that last day putting five or six fielders on the fence to Boomerah nine and a ten <laughs> so that you can bounce them. Boomerah averaged three coming into that innings. Three, you know, like there wasn't much to be afraid of. Um, and if you can't run one through him, then you're doing something wrong. So, yeah, the idea that we'll get him caught at deep third or deep fine leg off the top edge, you probably don't need to. There are probably other ways to do it. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, Root knew that he'd, he'd set that game up for England with his um, 180 and he'd also lost it for him on the last day getting sucked into the sort of you've got to stick up for your players sort of thing. I mean, a- Anderson's crankiness at his age, he should know better, you know. He's, well, he's been around long enough that he shouldn't be getting sucked into stuff. I'll like tell that. you something, because um, it's, it's interesting you should mention that, because he did actually reference uh, 2014 when the Indians came over. He got sucked into some verbals with Jadeja, you may recall, at Trent Bridge, mm-hmm. and it all kicked off in the, in the, in the pavilion on the way back. And he referenced this and he said, you know, I learned from that. I learned that it's not good for my game. It, it doesn't work. It's, it's not me. Um, and I've learned to just focus on what I do. And I think for the most part, that's true. It is true. But it, he, he got wound up there. He did the classic elder statesman thing. It's like a kind of, guys, I'm a 39-year-old with 600-plus wickets. Show me some respect. Don't bounce me. Hmm. Whereas I'm afraid... He would also accept, if we'd taken a step back, you're playing in a test match. India have got to get you out. You know, if, if Anderson lasts to the end of that day, England go out to bat on day four, that takes up mm-hmm. another three overs, apart from anything else. With Root on a strike, it would have added some more runs as well. So, you know, these tiny little margins in a five-day game, you can add all them up and you can see how India just got over the line with 8.1 overs to spare. But you also have got to factor in that that moment, that over that Boomer bowled, that 10-ball over with four no-balls peppering him mm. and Anderson allowing himself to revert to 2014 Anderson, that's, that was possibly, in many ways, the actual crucial, crucial moment in mm. the game. And England are lucky that they're not playing back-to-back tests, actually, because they've now got to regroup and somehow try and get that out of your head. I mean, that is a loss so devastating mm. because they'd done so well to get back into it. And while we talk about Joe Root carrying the batting, I mean, a few words for Bairstow, who's looked like he's back in form. Butler and Moeen, they only scored 20s, but they added 50-plus with Root. They gave them the kind of support they needed. So the batting side was starting to come together. And then they've kind of undone all that work in a horror 51.5 overs that sends them back to square one. And it's easy to forget when something like that yeah. happens. England won three away test matches at the start of this year. Two in Sri Lanka, one in Chennai, again off the back of Joe Root. They were flying high. Mm-hmm. And now what have they done? They've lost three in India, one to New Zealand, one to India again, mm. and down and down they spiral. But knowing England, they'll bounce back in some ludicrous fashion and, and win at least. <laughs> it's, it's been the way for the last few wow. years. They might have been Stokes was there, but uh, I'm not sure if that'll happen otherwise. Uh, a game that was even closer than 8.1 overs to go, uh, because either team could have won it 
right up until the end. West Indies and Pakistan. This was an extraordinary match, one of those low-scoring kind of games. Pakistan, 217 in the first innings. Uh, final word, favourite, forward alarm, making 56. Jason Holder took three for 26. West Indies got 253, just past that. Craig Brathwaite got 97. Jason Holder, 58, sort of doing it all for the West Indies. Pakistan make 203. With the, uh, the the newcomer, the teenage quick Jaden Seals takes five for fifty five, and so the Windies need one sixty seven to win. They're sixteen for three. They're stuffed. Jermaine Blackwood makes fifty five, but then he gets out one eleven for six, one fourteen for seven when Holder gets out, and then Seals puts on seventeen for the last wicket with Kemo Roach, who makes thirty not, and they win it. Uh, by one wicket, just an extraordinary game. But you, you were doing some commentary on that um, while this England match was going on at the same time. Yeah, it's amazing. I can be in in Sabina Park and then at Lords mm. and uh, who knows where else. I've done a hundred game actually on the first day of the test. I've, I've covered uh, three different matches. I think in five days. Uh, it was a sensational test match. It was really exciting and it it showed that this West Indies side has got a lot more to it than people think. I think this really is, if you're seeing England go on a downswing, we're seeing the West Indies on mm. an upswing, Pakistan fans will complain about the way their batters got out. They, they shouldn't do, actually, because it was an awkward pitch. It was an up-and-down pitch. It seesawed so much that the only time watching that game that I knew, thought I knew what the result was was T on the fourth day when Jason Holder was out, bowled to the last ball before T, and that meant that the West Indies needed 54 with three wickets in hand, I went, right, that's it, Pakistan. Now I know Pakistan have won this game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which just goes to show what I know about cricket. Um, it, it was a fantastic <laughs> game. And look, a little bit like you were saying about how England needed to be a bit more, well, way more aggressive and on the front foot when they were hunting down that or not, that 270-odd. Jermaine Blackwood, I sort of knew it at the start of the innings, actually, that if Blackwood came off, then the West mm. Indies could get there. Because 168 doesn't feel like a big target, but believe you me, the way Shine Shah Afridi and Hassan Ali were bowling, and they had Mohammed Abbas to dry up an end, um, mm-hmm. meant that 168 was going to be an awkward target. And they needed someone to just inject a bit of life, because no one in that match actually was able to go at more than 50 runs per 100 balls with any, uh, for mm. any length of time. Blackwood came out, and he just had a very simple method if there was any width, he flung the bat at it with this huge backswing. And, you know, the bat was almost mm-hmm. like hitting his bottom on the way through, you know. If it was short, he just climbed into it. If it was straight, he had this rather horrible defensive prod. And he got his 50-odd came off 70-odd balls. At the other end, Roston Chase was sort of being the pajara. He was playing everything really, really late. And in that partnership, mm. that got him up to 80-odd for three. And I thought, you know, this is... This is electrifying stuff. Then, out of nowhere, Hassan Ali conjures wickets. Shaheen Sharafridi take the top off the, the, the order in, the, in the, the first three wickets to fall. Then Hassan Ali came in. Faim Ashraf picked up a couple. Wickets were going down in clusters. But it got even more dramatic. Because there was nobody in the ground apart from the ground staff. And the ground mm. staff were all vociferously willing on the West Indies. You know, like the old barrackers of the 1980s, you know, giving the oppo the lot the, the ground staff who were mostly late middle-aged men from what I could tell it was quite strange we're all shouting and shouting and uh, Joshua De Silva came in after tea with with Kimar Roach and his approach was very different he was he was going to be entirely solid Kimar Roach did a Blackwood he basically 
attacked any ball outside his off stump with incredible ferocity and he blocked anything else that was straight or he ducked it if it was short. Mm -hmm. And the clarity of mind was really impressive to see. It was in stark contrast, it's got to be said, to the, the lack of clarity of mind that England have shown in this last test. But as we counted down and counted down, we had this classic situation developing. Clouds were rolling in and then rolling away. The day was lengthening. And um, the catch by Rizwan to take the ninth wicket, I thought that mm -hmm. sealed it. So at this point, dear listener, the West Indies needed 17 runs, two wickets in hand. The game has it swung towards the West Indies. It sure feels like it. Then mm -hmm. Warrican goes for a pull, gets a thick top edge. It flies down to the finest of fine legs. It is pursued by the minuscule Rizwan, who pelts after it, arms pumping, and dives full <laughs> length to take what could have been one of the great test match winning catches. He takes the catch. They're nine down. Surely now Pakistan have got it. Jaden Seals walks out. And I don't know if you yeah. have this debate so much in Australia, but in England we say... There's no red ball cricket because everyone's playing the 100. There's no preparation. How can Moeen Ali, Joss Butler, Sam Curran be expected to face a yeah. good tight bowling? Jaden Seals was playing his fourth first-class match ever. So talk about preparation. <laughs> talk about preparation. It's his fourth first-class match. He's 19 years yeah. old. Shine Shahafridi was bowling at literally 94 miles per hour in duckers to the left-hander on a grabby, uneven pitch. And he just props forward and defends. Plump defends. Plump. It was stunning. His it, oh, the 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 composure of the man. Again, it's making me well up. While at the other end, Kimar Roach, this old veteran, highest test score of forty-one, never been much caught with the bat. He's got his method, and he goes with his method. And we chip down, and we chip down, and and now I'm thinking, please let it be a tie, because Pakistan have been so good in this match, and the West Indies have been mm. so good in this match that the tragedy of a loser. It wasn't to be, and, and I, I really do feel for Pakistan, but also I'm I'm genuinely excited about what's happening in West Indian cricket. I think Brathwaite is a really sound captain, and this guy, Jaden Seals, don't get really... Don't imagine that he's like Colin Croft. I mean, he's a similar height. Mm -hmm. he's, he's a tall, tall guy, broad shoulders, strong-looking, but it's actually the intelligence of his bowling that was so impressive. Balls from a, a good height... And he, he realised that this was a pitch where you hit the deck, hit the deck, you get the seam, you hit the seam, you don't know which direction it'll go, go away or in, and he regularly did it. He gave very little away, but very few bad balls. He became the youngest West Indian ever, although I hate the word ever in this context, but he became the youngest West Indian mm -hmm. to take a five foot in Test cricket. And you think about the great bowlers they've had. He beat Alf Valentine, who in 1950, wow. my little, those little pals of mine, Mm, Ramadan yeah. and Valentine, who spun the West Indies to victory in 1950. Well, Valentine held the record at 20 years and 30-odd days or something, and Jaden Seals beat it. He's 19 years and 300-and-something days. And, and then when he was spoken to afterwards, the, he's an incredibly impressive young man. Ian Bishop on commentary kept saying, rather curiously, he kept saying, he go, he's been very well educated. He went to a very good school, which, you know, if you said that in England would be <laughs> would be sort of very strange yes. classist comment to make but <laughs> but I understood what he meant what I, did they say about Alistair Cook he's from the right he's type of family the right type of family for, for England exactly yeah. but actually I, I knew I knew what what Bish meant he just was a, he was very thoughtful and he played test cricket like he'd 
been watching it and playing it for years and he was only 19 it was a scintillating mm. game of cricket I got back home from BT Towers at about 12 o'clock to find Jeremy Coney and my wife dancing to the Bee Gees um, <laughs> so it was all in all just about the most perfect day for me <laughs> Uh, and, and what happened after that we'll leave to the imagination of listeners. Well, we, we, um, we, we, we moved on to a flight of the Concords Marathon. and uh, <laughs> uh, It's business time. <laughs> Indeed. It's business. It's business time. You know it's time for business Oh, that's time. right, Daniel. Yeah, there was a lot of that oh, going excellent on. work, Daniel. Come on in and make yourself comfortable. <laughs> Take off your strides, <laughs> stretch out on the city, and just be at home. Actually, he did. Uh, he, did those, virtually, he did virtually say exactly those words. Get into your comfies, <laughs> settle down. We've got a lovely uh, evening of music and wine. <laughs> uh, that takes us through the first bit of the show. We've got plenty more to come. Looking at Justin Langer, the IPL, the T Twenty World Cup, the hundred, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, right at the moment, we're just going to play a very quick game. A late night rendition of Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. It's a reverse quiz. It's a game that we play with people on our Patreon page. Here's how it works. We make a show twice a week. We have to fund that show. And people help us do it by sending in contributions. But instead of sending in a normal amount of currency, they send in a very specific amount because that number relates to cricket in some way and we have to work out what it means. For instance, our nerd pleasure on this show is Ryan Thomas. The number is $4.13. So that could mean 41.3, could mean 413, it could mean 4 for 13, it could mean a whole lot of different things. But we've got to try to figure it out. Ryan didn't send a clue so much as a, a, a comment. He said he's a long-time Julio first time nerding so that means he's had a normal pledge for a long time but now he's changed it to a nerd pledge 413 as far as cap numbers go only two countries go up to 413 uh, england and australia so 413 is david Larter for england and sexy ryan harris for australia uh, quite a difference in eras for those two. <laughs> oh yeah um i don't know anything about david Larter, but you might i do uh, indeed Daniel. i do indeed he's, he's sort of when i first started um getting into cricket I was seven in the mid-70s, and David Larter was a name that uh, was sort of uh, was spoken about in semi-hushed tones by my father. He was mm-hmm. immensely tall, six foot seven, took 666 devilish wickets in his first-class career Oof. at an average of just under 20. Only played 10 games for England or so, I think, took 37-odd wickets at a good average. But they said about Larter that he, he was a bit of a daisy. Some days he did, some days he didn't. And if he didn't feel uh, like it, he, could, he didn't do it. And if he did feel like it, he'd bowl lightning quick from this enormous height. But he didn't, you know, didn't pull up trees. It was in an era as well, bless him, of Test cricket, which was incomparably boring. The 1960s <laughs> in England, in contrast, in contrast to the swinging 60s in London, cricket decided that it uh. wanted to take you back to some... You know, some medievalism where everyone was in bed by 4.30 crocheting tapestries. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was altogether a, a bad era. And, um, yeah, <laughs> that's him. And I, th- Can I just have a quick word, though, on shirt numbers? I'm sorry to digress yeah. during Nerd Pledge, but I've got a solution. It's never been done before. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, well, I'm trying to play the collo role we here. don't stand <laughs> for that sort of thing on this podcast, <laughs> sir. So... 
this is my issue. I think shirt numbers are um, largely speaking absurd because they're just random numbers that seem mm-hmm. to be collected with no real purpose. You know, the Currens are 58 and 59 for England, Tom and Sam. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Alistair Cook was number 26. Why was he 26? It's double 13. I don't like it. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't refer to anything. Mm-hmm. Why aren't they just numbers 1 to 11? That might work, but then, you know, batting orders change. And they change around. You got it. So I've got a solution. And the solution is this, mm-hmm. that your shirt number should be the number that you, your, your squad, your, your, your appearance number. So in the case of Ryan Harris, mm-hmm. he would be number 13. David Larter would have been number 13. So you take off the front number, yeah. Because very, right. very, very rarely will you find that somebody is like mm. playing number 613 with number 713. Now, it could happen with England. Sure. Because Jimmy Anderson's career has been going on so long. <laughs> and in fact, I wouldn't it could be. could happen s- in a season for England yeah, well, <laughs> at some point. Yeah, especially given the turmoil, there may be many new capped players. But it happens incredibly rarely in the history of Test cricket mm. if it's happened at all. And if it does happen, then you get, the, you get your full number on the back because that is like kind of the mm-hmm. thing, right? And one of the reasons I suggest this is because then you'd have like clusters of 13s. So you mentioned Ryan mm-hmm. Harris. He would be in a cluster with Mike Whitney, who was also a 13. He was 313. Oh. And with Billy Murdoch, right. the great Billy Murdoch, who got that double hundred at yeah. the Oval in 1884. He was uh-huh. the first number 13, right? So you've then right. got... And then you can have dinners with the 13s. Mm. They can come and be speakers. Wouldn't it be fun? You'd have, like, you know, the 25-year-old who's 13, the 50-year-old who's a 13, the 75-year-old mm-hmm. who's a 13. And you can all come and hear their different stories. And you can play fantasy games. Which number would win? Mm-hmm. You know, Don Bradman. I don't know what number Don Bradman was. But that side's going to have pretty good batting numbers, you'd imagine. But he might be mm-hmm. in a cluster with a bunch of one-cat wonders who are no good. Who knows? Mm-hmm. And we could then speculate. And then those numbers would mean something. And they would have a history. And it would be fun, rather than just a random number picked from nowhere. And we in cricket don't believe in random numbers. All numbers have purpose. No. Don't no. they? All, they're all significant in some particular way. Exactly. I don't think Billy Murdoch's doing a lot of speaking engagements. Uh, well, we get a stand-in. We get, we get uh, a stand-in for him. Yeah. Or we, we get David Frith. I mean, that's, that's the obvious thing mm. to do. When you get a, a cricketer so old and they're dead already, you just there's always a place for David Frith to play the part of each of those guys, the celebrated Anglo-Australian cricket historian. <laughs> that would be my answer. Uh, Jack Blackham is played by David Frith. <laughs> In today's performance. <laughs> exactly. Tips, the role of Tip Snook will be filled by David Frith. <laughs> who's, also, who's also standing like, in for Monkey Hornby. <laughs> it, it, it's like when Tup Scott will be played by... It's like when uh, yeah, when they have the understudy, do the That's matinee. Right. That's you know, it. You got the it. Phantom of the Opera or whatever. Yeah, Marina Pryor is not available today. Uh, Christine will be played by David Frith. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. I like this. I like that it had nothing to do with 413 either. In terms of the number 413, yeah. there are a couple of things that I found. If I, if I were looking at it as 4 for 13, uh, Shane Warne took 4 for 13 in 
we were talking about weird Pakistan matches. The, the horrible match in Sharjah in 2002 when it was about 50-something degrees. And I think it, it may be the only instance in Test cricket where a team was bowled out for a score which was the same as the temperature because Pakistan made 59 and 53 in the match <laughs> in their two innings, either side of Australia making 310. Also notable because Matthew Hayden made 119, which meant that in one hit he made seven more runs than 11 Pakistani players made in 22 innings. That's brilliant. Um, <laughs> Shane Warne took four for 11 in the first, four for 13 in the second, uh, which could be Ryan Thomas's number, meaning eight for 24 in the match. Paul Rifle took four for 13 in ODIs, but this one was perfect given what we were talking about with West Indies just now. Jason Holder in 2013, in only his fourth ODI, he was playing against who? Against Pakistan, of course, in Providence. He... Raw knew he was the Jaden Seals of his day. Bowled the second over of the match, bowled a maiden. Fourth over, he took a wicket. Wicket in the sixth over, wicket in the eighth over, wicket in the tenth over. So he's four for seven at this point. Should be five for eight when Umar Akmal nicks one, but he's given not out and there's no DRS. Holder bowls eight in a row, and then about four overs later comes back for his last two. He's bowling to Shahid Afridi, and you were talking about Shaheen Shah Afridi playing in the test match against Holder just now. Shahid Afridi didn't try to slog Jason Holder. Even Shahid Afridi played him out respectfully. Four for 13 from his full 10 overs in that match. Pakistan then recovered to make 224 and bowl out the West Indies for 98. Oh, no. So thanks for the bowling. Completely pointless. At number 11 is Jason Holder, who's LBW to Afridi for naught. But imagine thinking that that guy, that kid in 2013... Number 11, duck, fourth ball, LBW, would be the guy making a test double hundred, batting at six, uh, you know, becoming mm. the inspirational captain and all the rest. Uh, that was the day early in his career that he took four for 13. That is a beautiful story, Jeffrey. That is an absolutely mm. beautiful story. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I didn't, you know, I don't think I ever heard that one before. I've got a number for you. Uh, I've got, mm. a, I've got a, an idea for the four 13s, and they're both Indian. Okay. Because it's a bit of an Indian-themed week this week after their fabulous victory. Mm-hmm. Now, the first thing that came to my mind was the highest first wicket partnership in Test cricket history. It was between oh, yes. it was between Vinu Mankad and Pankaj Roy in I think December 1956, and I believe it still stands 413. Mm-hmm. That was the first thing that came to mind, and then on another Indian mm-hmm. theme, briefly it was only for what eight years. India held the record for the highest score in a World Cup, in a Cricket World Cup, when they put 413 past Bermuda in 2007, Bermuda, which uh-huh. uh, is, is quite the thing. I suppose that would have been the, the Bermuda which of, of, of great fame, of great slip-catching fame. Uh, but yes. A, but it wasn't in that the match. The same side. Same side. So those are two 413s that are Indian-themed. But I suspect that Ryan Thomas... Maybe mm. maybe it's all about Ryan Harris for Ryan Thomas. Maybe, maybe. Uh, maybe maybe Ryan Thomas is known as Sexy Ryan Thomas yeah. to his friends. I hope so. I hope that is the case. But, Ryan, regardless of whether that is or is not the case, uh, given that you're the nerd pledger on the show, you also get to give someone a slab. Brick Lane, our brewing friends, provide a case of beer that you can give away. It has to go to someone in Australia. It could be you. 
It could be someone else. I don't know if you're in Australia. If you are, you could get it. If you're not, you can send it to someone else. Uh, it will come to you. There are many kinds. The Backyarder Crisp Lager, the uh, Refreshing Brick Lane Draft, the One Love Pale Ale, and Daniel... I can't wait for you to come out to Australia next time so we can let you sample oh. all that Brick Lane have to offer, our Melbourne brewing friends. Well, you know, you keep going with that vaccination program and maybe, maybe, just maybe, you'll let us in in December. I've heard good news. Mm. I mean, you're aiming for 80% by the end of November. Surely then you might consider your way to letting a double-vaxxed, middle-aged Englishman who's mostly antisocial and isn't likely to mix too much anyway come over to Jeff's house and get blind. Well, no, not, no. I mean, drinking very responsibly on lots of Brick Lane Lager. Yeah. <laughs> Bricklanebrewing.com.au. Uh, thank you to them for supporting the show. Right, it's time for the mid-show breather. Uh, we take a minute to clear our minds and then we'll come back for the second half. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. The Lord's Taverners, Daniel Norcross, you know them, I know them. You probably know them better than I do because you were just describing yourself as a middle-aged English gentleman and I feel like the Lord's Taverners is a, in a Venn diagram situation, <laughs> uh, there's a, a very strong overlap with the demographic you've just described uh, and a charity that does a lot of excellent work around cricket, around fundraising uh, from cricket and putting on programs for, uh, particularly for kids living with disability and uh, living in disadvantaged situations situations using cricket as a way to to try to provide social engagement uh, for them and, and provide things for them to do i think they're an absolutely wonderful charity one of the great things about being part of the laws taverners is that you actually see the fruits of your support given out uh, the ashes series uh, in england mm. they traditionally play a game in a village in surrey I think it's, I can't remember where it is now, because I go every time and I never remember. And they bring with them, they bring with them a minivan because the game itself raises, and, and it always does every time, the amount of money for a minivan. And the minivan is used to take disadvantaged kids, some of them are profoundly disabled, to a variety of events. It gets them to play games as well, like table cricket. If you've ever seen table cricket in mm -hmm. action, it's a wonderful thing because a lot of these kids have really profound disabilities, can't move very easily but from their chairs and their wheelchairs and what have you they're able to participate in actual games and you see the joy and delight of actually just having some physicality in your life but they also do like outreach programs to kids who are disadvantaged in other ways and they do wonderful work in communities where a lot of these kids cricket's an expensive sport and there's not a lot of infrastructure around and taverners go in and they, they just get kids playing games and playing cricket, which is such a wonderful game for kids to play because mm. they understand various responsibilities and what have you. It's just great to see. And from a selfish personal point of view, it's always good fun because the events the taverners put on, I was at one the other day at the Oval and there were two England captains there, Mike Gatting and Chris Cowdery, telling tall tales of, you know, again, going to India in 1984-5 when people were being assassinated and all manner of horrors <laughs> were happening on the pitch, but uh, off the pitch, but all manner of incredible things were happening on the pitch and the sort of durability of cricket. And that were just in the England dressing room. <laughs> well, actually, Foxy Fowler tells a great story about that series. It, this was after the, the High Commissioner had been assassinated and Gandhi had been assassinated. It was a pretty tough time and there was an election going on. And uh, mm. the coaches said, right, you're, uh, you're all being called for 10 o'clock for practice. 
And Graham Fowler, the England opener, said laconically, what, target practice? Which was <laughs> quite the line. Anyway, um, you get to go to these, these marvellous, rather bibulous events, but also they play games, they arrange games, and various mm. celebrities. You know, it all started when John Cleese, among others, put together a kind of celebrity team, and then they'd go around country playing. So nowadays, like old cricketers like Matthew Hoggard, Andy Caddick, you know, Gladstone Small, Devon Malcolm, they turn up and they play in these games together with sort of TV personalities, radio mm-hmm. personalities. Toby Tarrant, who is somebody we know both mm-hmm. and love very well, who's a very useful cricketer. And I turn up and I just take the piss out of them with a microphone over the speaker system and, and it's all very jolly. And loads of people turn up and money is raised and all that money goes straight into the charity and it's not wasted on this, that, and the other, and flim-flam. Um, I adore them. They're fantastic. And I hope you mm. can find it in you to, um, to dig into your pocket a little bit. I know it's, it's hard to say this to people who are in lockdown because you've got other mm. things on your mind and you've probably got precarious work lives and all sorts of stuff. We've been there, my friends. We had it for well over a year. So believe you me, you have my sympathies. But if you find that you can, then anything given would be hugely gratefully received. Exactly uh, my sentiments, Daniel. That is lordstaverners.org if you want to check out the programs uh, that they put on, which are numerous, and uh, the good effect that it has in communities, not just in the UK, but um, other countries around the world as well. lordstaverners.org, check them out. G'day guys, this is Jimmy Neesham, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lehman. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Daniel Norcross filling in for Adam Collins today. Uh, well, thing, things are happening. Things are happening quite quickly in the world of cricket. Just after we recorded the show last week, uh, suddenly all of the Justin Langer stories started coming out. Now, a couple of months ago, the stories were about there being a review into uh, JL's work methods and whether they were whether they were going down well with the players that he was coaching and so on. There was a, a supposed kind of cultural reset. He'd supposedly taken feedback on board, etc. And then over the a few weeks after that, he seemed to indicate that he hadn't actually taken any of that on board and didn't want to and didn't think he should take it on board. And then a story erupted about him getting very stroppy with uh, one of the cricket.com.au journos who had posted a video on the Cricket Australia website of the Bangladesh team celebrating after completely smashing Australia in a T20 series. Which, generally speaking, if you're reporting on a series, then putting up video and written work pertaining to that series, including, you know, noting who has won it, seems fairly logical, but apparently this was not perceived that way by Gavin Dovey, the team manager, and Justin Langer, the coach. It's now kind of spiralled into a thing of whether Langer should stay in the job uh, ahead of the Ashes. Um, His close friend and comrade Adam Gilchrist initially tried to help him out by getting on his radio show and saying that the stories that had been reported weren't true. They were true, they were very well sourced, and so then Gilchrist had to back down and say what that they were true, but if there was a problem with Langer, then he either had to be kicked out now or or stuck with and something decisive had to be done. So it seems like Gilchrist's attempt to help has actually blown up in, in his and Langer's face. And it's all happened over the course of a week. Yeah, I mean, I watch it from afar, Jeff, and obviously with a certain wry grin because we saw that marvellous documentary, The Test, and we saw Justin's particular manner. And I find him fascinating Mm -hmm. to watch as a people watcher 
I just, I love his intensity, his crazed intensity the whole time, the slightly high-pitched querulous voice that he has, and I guess I adore it. And then he kicks over a bin and then puts things back in the bin, and I feel kind of fond of him. But the thing is, I'm mm. not actually having to work with him, so I don't really know the ins and outs. Uh, you'll know better than me. He's just, he's box office entertainment if you don't really have skin in the game. But... I guess for the people that do, it's causing a bit of an issue. The elite mateship and things like that provide us with wonderful mm. sound bites that we can enjoy. But uh, your perspective on this would fascinate me. I've never been able to figure out exactly how the Langer thought process works. You know, some people you can you can work out how they perceive the world and roughly how they might greet any particular happening. There's a kind of randomising element, it seems, to the way he will respond to things, um, which includes responding to the same thing in completely different ways a period of time apart and then denying that he ever responded to it in a, the different way previously because he's now responding to it in the way he is now and so that must be what he thinks. So I, I, th I think I've never been able to figure out Langer in that way. There's certainly an entertaining aspect, but as you say having to be in, in the same room and, and work with that day in, day out may be less entertaining than, uh, the, than being able to watch on. Can I ask, because it's interesting styles of coaches and people talk about old mm. school and we hear a lot of coaches over here talking about how young cricketers coming into the game need to be treated very differently from how they used to be. You know, the traditional way for a player back in the 70s and 80s to come in was that they would sit down, they would polish the old pro's boots, they would shut up and they would listen while they were told exactly how cricket was properly played and what it was to be a pro. And if they messed up, they were told in no uncertain terms. And you speak to coaches now, and they say, well, things have to be a little bit different. You have to have a bit of an arm around the shoulder. You have to be encouraging. You have to do the exact opposite, in actual fact. When a youngster comes in, they've mm. got to be made to feel really welcome. Which strikes me as just good man management, actually, and, and quite sensible way to go about getting the best out of people. Is the problem with Langer, perhaps, that he's a little a little old school, a little intense, is it that, I mean, I'm not for one minute imputing that this would be the case, but someone like Adam Zampa, for example, feels like a mm -hmm. very new man, loves his coffee, you know, uh, I, I could imagine going for a drink with him, being very down to earth and sort of, but kind of a little bohemian and a bit fun, uh, whereas maybe Justin's slightly psychotically mm. intense with the way he goes about things. <laughs> and, uh, is is that is that part of the problem? Is it a stylistic issue? I think the intensity may be where it's at. That he has said this himself hundreds of times. He wanted nothing more and cared about nothing more than playing for Australia. That was it. That was the that was not only the pinnacle, but that was the ascent. That was the whole mountain. That's what it was all about. And so possibly having other people approach things in a different way where maybe playing cricket is something that they do and it's something that they want to do well but it's not that completely central part of their life maybe he doesn't <laughs> i just I, I feel like being around that intensity of of commitment look if you if you care enough about the team that you're coaching that you're angry that the other team celebrating got posted in a video that sort of says that maybe you care too much or maybe you care so much that you're projecting it into the onto the wrong things you know it's it's overflowing into areas where it shouldn't and being that invested like probably to be really good in that professional environment you need to be 
able to be dispassionate when you need to be. You know, passion is great, but dispassion is essential. Yeah, and I, obviously, because Jeremy's living with me at the moment, Jeremy Coney, I can't think of a man less like Justin Langer in that way. Um, mm. he's, he's As far as international captains. Absolutely. Go, yeah. Well, he's, he's, he's <laughs> a perfect example of what do they know about cricket who only cricket know. And I guess maybe Langer is a little bit... Not, doesn't have quite so many outside interests, perhaps, and uh, mm. means that perspective can sometimes get lost. But, as you say, look, it's that intensity that got him to the very top of his profession and made him great. It's, it's mm. different strokes for different folks, and I'm not prescribing one or the other, really. But, uh, like I say, I'll keep a watching brief with a wry smile. Well, as far as the intensity goes and the entertainment, I think we have to take this opportunity to drop in some work from Twitter user Take the Two in this performance of Justin Langer in Bangladesh. G'day, mate. I've just had a uh, little quick look at the website, the Cricket Australia website, mate. Yeah, there's a, team, there's a video of a Bangladesh team song on there, mate. <laughs> Are we the Australian cricket? Is that Australian cricket team's website, mate? All right, that's Australian Cricket Team's website. Only, only one song should be on that website, mate. I know the Southern Cross was down, it's pretty water in my hand. Australia, yeah. Bangladesh Team song. On the website, how to get there. I saw you filming it, so I'm wondering if you've had something to do with it getting on there. That's Cricket Show website, mate. Well, that was one of the most scary, sinister and magnificent performances I've ever seen. I, I, I've watched it a little bit like Collo. I've watched it about 150 times, just for tips, really. <laughs> just for tips to see how I could do my Langer better. But So thank you to him. <laughs> now, the IPL, we've had reporting today that the Australia and England players have both been cleared by their boards to play in the second half of the postponed IPL. This includes the players who haven't gone on other tours for their national teams, which I'm sure will go down very badly in some quarters. The early reporting suggests that David Warner, Steve Smith and Marcus Stoinis have all uh, committed to going for IPL Mark II. Um, some of the other players haven't. We haven't heard from them yet. No word on the England players. But pretty, pretty curious that this has been given the go-ahead by the board. Well, I, I, I don't know that it is really. I think it's where we're going. It's where we're heading. You know, your mm. commitment to your IPL franchise, if you're a cricketer and you've got a contract with them, makes up a huge amount of your salary. And it's great fun tournament. Everybody who plays in it absolutely loves doing it. So let's not forget that as well. And I'm not mm. quite sure why we should expect them not to want to do it. KP had been agitating Kevin Peterson about this way back when. And, you know, he's been proved right, whether you like it or not, he's been proved right that the boards have had to cave. In some ways, it helps the boards to know that there's a big paymaster somewhere. It takes a bit of the pressure off them, doesn't it? And what they mm -hmm. have to pay the players. So, yeah, I think it does. The optics aren't great from the point of view of the diehard Australia fan and England fan. They think that these players therefore care more about the Rajasthan Royals and they do about the three lions on the chest which you've mm -hmm. got to be lacrimose about and kiss and yank mm -hmm. away at your shirt with. But <laughs> the reality of this is that uh, this is professional sport. I'm not surprised. And it, I mean, I guess what I'm slightly surprised at is that they're so desperate to actually finish this tournament because then they're going to go into a T20 World Cup at the same venues. Heaven knows how those pitches are going to hold up. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I've... I dread to think how slow and low <laughs> it could get at Abu Dhabi by the end of that tournament. But, um, you know, 
What's there to say, really? It's yeah. a juggernaut that is just going to roll and roll and roll. Well, you know, if, if Rashid Khan's defending 88 in the final, then it, like, it could be quite a spectacle, yeah. um, a, a close-run thing. But maybe that is part of it, is that it's effectively a warm-up for the T20 World Cup. We've had the schedule for that released as well. So that starts on the 23rd, I think, of October with um, Australia, South Africa, and then England, West Indies on night one, and then India, Pakistan play at night two. Very curious how India and Pakistan always end up in the same group, the same pool at every ICC World Cup. It's happened at every single one by pure coincidence it, because yeah. the teams are drawn out of a hat. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, mm. just as well because otherwise they'd never play each other in any form of cricket. So I suppose yeah. the mercy of this coincidence, I mean, how long it can go on like this, I, I don't mm. know. We just have to thank our lucky stars that every time yeah. those names come out, they come out next to each other. Because it gives us the We've opportunity got a great to hat. Oh, no, it's, yeah, it's a real quality hat. It's a, do you know what it is? It's a Harry Potter sorting hat, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> and it just spews out the right result every time. <laughs> bit a bit trepidatious for England that their first game should be against the mighty West Indies, who are very very good at T Twenty. But mm-hmm. I, I really like the T Twenty World Cup. I have to confess, people may think I'm a heretic for saying that. It's short. It's snappy. Always produces crazy drama. I guess one of the things that we'll really be keeping an eye on there is Afghanistan. I mean, without wishing to get too serious and bring the, the tone of the conversation into darker areas, but how Afghanistan are going to be able to continue with their cricket generally, given the, what's been happening in their country, uh, yeah. that will be something that we'll have to keep an eye on. Yeah, well, the Taliban have not been famously cricket enthusiasts and you know there have been numerous bombings at cricket grounds, at cricket matches and so on. Um, a lot of people killed in instances like that in Afghanistan over the last few years. I suppose it's one of those things where maybe sometimes the, the success of a sporting team can help win support where there might not have been support before. It might start to be viewed as a, a vehicle for, uh, for national pride by the extremists as well, but you, you don't necessarily want the team to be representing them or being their vehicles, you know, as some sort of soft power diplomacy kind of vehicle. So, mm. yeah, it's going to be extremely fraught. Um, they've basically been a, a, a team in exile anyway over their entire existence. You know, they've never played an international in Afghanistan and, and at this rate probably never will. But, yeah, how much how much connection and how much support they can have at home, um, given that it's being overrun, is is the real question. Yeah, and a quick word on that for, for Rashid Khan, who's over here at the moment playing in the 100. And he was talking, you know, after bowling his side to victory, and he wasn't really able to celebrate any of his wickets. His mind was on something else. His family's still in Afghanistan. He wasn't able to get them out. He's got to be very careful how he chooses his words, but you could see the, the genuine nervousness, anxiety that he's got. I mean, it's mm. it must be really, really tough for those players uh, not knowing how their families are getting on, not really being able to be in, in proper contact with them. Uh, and, you know, we talk about the stresses and strains of cricketers in, under COVID. They're very real. They're very real and they're very problematic and constant lockdowns have caused uh, mental health concerns. But you add on top of that that your country's going through that kind of turmoil, it must be unspeakably difficult. So my thoughts go out to all those players. 
Yeah, absolutely. So that tournament that Afghanistan will be playing in, the group stages go for 17 days. Um, once you put the finals in, it'll be just over three weeks for the team that makes the finals. They've got reserve days for each of the three finals, the two semis and the final, which is good to see after what happened in the last T20 World Cup with the women in March 2020. The semi-final washed out for England there. And you mentioned the 100, which I have had very little time to watch much of, but you have been watching. Can you give me a, a little tour of what's been going on in the 100 ball stuff yeah well some of the broadcasters have been accused by george de of employing kim jong-un style journalism in mm-hmm. in trumpeting the wonders of the 100 he has a little bit of a point but essentially it's a t20 tournament it's a franchise t20 tournament just played with 100 balls some bits are quite mm-hmm. fun actually the uh, the 10 ball business from one end which was poo-pooed at the start does mean that occasionally you'll see bowlers bowl 10 balls straight it means that you get different tactics because sometimes You've got a bowler like David Willey, who really is only effective with the new ball. So he can bowl like 15 balls in the power play of 25. And he can bowl 10 balls mm-hmm. straight. Or you see, like we did the other day, Adil Rashid bowls the second set of five, because no one dare call it an over, mm-hmm. from one end. And then it flips around to the other end, and he can bowl the next five. And you think, wow, that's really curious. We're struggling um, with nomenclature, because the idea was to make things simple. And you can poo-poo this, mm-hmm. and, and I generally do. So they don't like words like over. But then, so what do you call it? So I've got an idea for it. Basically, there's a set of five balls. So that's a fiver, Uh right? Now, what's a fiver? A fiver is a five-pound note in England. So who's on a Uh five-pound note? A Winston. Winston Churchill. You can bowl ten balls. You bowl ten balls in one set from one end. Who's on the Mm ten-pound note? Jane Austen. So lovely gender neutrality. You've got a Winston Mm -hmm. and you've got an Austen. And if you bowl a maiden, Mm -hmm. if you get five dot balls in your Winston... You've basically bowled a Godiva, a Lady Godiva, which is Cockney mm-hmm. rhyming saying for a fiver. Why? Because Lady Godiva mm-hmm. famously rode through Coventry naked. So there are no runs in the over. It's a naked over. It's a Godiva. So you've bowled two Winstons, two Godivas, none for none, for example, uh-huh. is what it becomes. I'm trying to get this off the right. ground. Not sure it's really working. Where does Jane Austen come into that? Well, Jane Austen is if you're going to, you bowl an Austen from one end. You bowl a Jane Austen mm-hmm. from one end because that's 10 balls. You might bowl two mm-hmm. Winstons in an Austen. You might bowl two mm-hmm. Winstons. One of them is a Godiva in your Austin. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think. Well, that, I, and I, I think this can work. I suppose Winston Churchill does go together strongly with Pride and Prejudice as well. So yes, you know, I think it all ties in. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very strong point. As for the cricket on the field, I've got to be honest with you. In the men's tournament, it's a decent standard. It's probably not much different from the T20 Blast for obvious COVID reasons, actually. No Aussie players are mm. over. Uh, no West Indian players because it's sort of clashing. Well, there are some, but very few. Cause it's clashing with the CPL. So it's kind of the better T20 players accumulated into mm. eight sides. The crowds have been fantastic. The main benefit has been to women's cricket. I've never seen such a high quality of women's domestic cricket. And I, I include in that the women's big bash. And next year, hopefully... Aussie players will come over as well, which will make it just a stellar tournament. Some mm. great stats for you. 25,000 people watched two women's games in a weekend uh, or, or, or over the course of three days. One was at the Oval, one was at Lords. So the women's game happens first. They're all double-headers. Women's game, mm. say, at 3 o'clock and the men's game at sort of 6, 6.30. There were 12,000 or so in for the women's section and then it, they add up the men. Some people come in for the men's games. That 25,000 was... 2,000 fewer than watched the entirety 
of the women's KSL, which was the T20 tournament before, or sort of equivalent to the women's Big Bash that happened yeah. before the 100. So the crowds are flocking in. Uh, the recognition of women's cricket is going through the roof. I was at a game in Manchester when um, Sophie Eccleston walked out to bat and the crowd of, there were about 8,000 in at that point, genuinely cheered because they knew who she was, which may sound mm. petty, but it's in fact really important because we're starting to see women's cricket really entering into the consciousness of crowds. That's wonderful to see. And I got to mm. commentate on a game where uh, the Northern Superchargers, who are basically Yorkshire, were playing against the yep. Manchester Originals, which is basically Lancashire. The crowd was going mm. absolutely berserk for Superchargers the Originals, even though it wasn't Yorkshire v Lancashire. Superchargers scored mm -hmm. 200. They got to 200 with a four off their last ball. The crowd went ballistic because there is something kind of lovely about the, the numbers, the 100, you know, and it's 200. Yeah. Poor old Stephen Finn, with whom I do a podcast, which I'm going to plug briefly, zero ducks given. He's our, <laughs> he's our regular on that. He got hit for 29 runs in his Winston, in his five balls. 29 runs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Or by his Yow. by his Middlesex teammate John Simpson, so it's two Middlesex players playing <sighs> against each other in what was effectively a Roses derby in the north of England. <laughs> the, there was so much to unpick; it was wonderful. And yet, all the misgivings I had about you know, will people turn up? Will they care about these manufactured entities that never existed? Have not mm. been founded. Actually, they've had great crowds. It's been superb for that, but. You've got to balance that with the damage it does to county cricket, the structure of cricket, the schedule of cricket. There's no red ball cricket here, so when England keep losing test matches, they can't go and find a batter who's in form because there's none of it happening. But these are mm. problems that happen around the world. The problem about the basic fundamentals of domestic cricket in England are ones that, that have come to the fore, whether they'll be able to do some tweaks, maybe get rid of the T20 blast. That has knock-on problems for the counties and finances but in essence it's a jolly good romp there's a game every day it's got a narrative flow like all the best tournaments in england we haven't been able to do that because we had 18 counties playing against each other no one you know somebody could score 100 but it wasn't being televised so you had to catch a bit of it on a live mm. stream or a little bit on twitter you know uh, and this has just made the whole thing much more neat it's not as ludicrous as i thought it was going to be far from it and yeah in in essence headline for the women, mm. absolutely fantastic. It's it's transforming women's cricket. Yeah, in the end, it's cricket, and we like cricket, so we're probably going yeah. to like it to some extent. Uh, the the question is always whether it needed to be that cricket, Correct. or whether uh, the same promotion and backing could have been given to cricket that already existed. Don't suppose we'll ever be able to answer because that's that's where we are. Right. I think we've reached a point where we can leave it. Oh. Uh, Daniel Norcross, thank you so much for being our fill-in, my temporary Adam on the show today. Being an ersatz Adam has always been my ambition and uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> delighted to have achieved it. But thank you very much for having me. It's been a thorough joy. Always a delight talking to you, Geoffrey. And uh, I think we're hooking up again, aren't we? Yeah, we are. We'll be doing story time this weekend, uh, me and DN. So this uh, has been the final word. Jeff Lemon, Daniel Norcross. Uh, the show is out on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. Thanks to Brick Lane, uh, fine makers of fine beer who have been supporting the show and also to the Lord's Taverners. And a big thanks to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. We'll be getting to a bunch of those nerd pledge numbers on story time on the weekend. If you want to check that out, it's patreon.com slash... 
the final word. Uh, everything else, Lord's Tabs details and so on, will all be in the show notes. And uh, we will be back with you on the weekend for story time to dig into cricket history. See you next time. Bye bye. I had to go about it.